0: Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Hying. Today's episode features an interview with composer, educator, and organizer Casey Anderson that we recorded back in May. Casey and I discussed his approach to composition, his record label, A-Wave Press, and his activities as an educator and concert organizer. Throughout the episode, you'll hear excerpts of Anderson's Ghosts performed by Bent Duo. As always, if you have thoughts about this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our handle is at an index of music. Thanks for listening.
1: Changes. Who writes... A what?
0: So I just like to start off uh, podcast interviews by having people introduce themselves and, you know, say a little bit about what you do.
2: Okay. So my name is Casey Anderson. I uh, write music and play saxophone as well as instruments that I build. Um, and am also a creative technologist and educator.
0: Great, yeah, one of the reasons why I am particularly excited to talk to you is that you just do a lot of stuff, and one of the big questions I have for you is like, do you ever sleep? Who knows? (laughs) Um, Because you really sold yourself short there, you also are really involved with programming, you have run kind of a record label, you do workshops for people, Mm -hmm. you do all sorts of cool stuff. Um, And are also just super active in the general experimental music scene. So, yeah. Do you sleep ever?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like doing lots of different things. Um, And I've always had, like, multiple interests. Uh, I mean, for me, like, the model was always, even though I've always been a musician, was always, like, uh, kind of studio art practitioners who seemed to, like, it seemed, I mean, I don't know exactly when I started, like, kind of thinking in these terms, but at some point, like, I grew up going to, like, um, art museums with my family. And so in particularly, like, as someone who's from Minnesota, like the Walker Art Museum is like an incredibly rich resource right Right. um and at a certain point like it became apparent that like if you just called yourself an artist like the collection of different things that could fall under your art practice was so much larger than if you called yourself a musician and so to me like that just seemed to kind of not to say like oh i need to like self-identify as an artist but it's more like well cool like With a small change in terminology here, it's actually not so unusual to have, like, kind of a wide-ranging practice. Yeah. Um, And a lot of the people who really had a big impact on me, either when I was a student or just, like, in terms of the kind of work they did, were people who had this in common. You know, their practice involved, like, five or so things often one of those things involved curation and often one of those things had some sort of a community orientation, whether that was like the curation project or not. And so I don't know, to me there was like kind of a certain permission that was granted uh, to uh, people who like identified more with like a contemporary studio art practice. And it was just like, well actually all of the musicians I like have the same kind of, multifaceted way of looking at their practice with sound right or in and around sound Um, and that's kind of what was always interesting to me about uh being uh, like not just a musician but like I guess like an auteur you know musician or something like that
0: sure and so it was sort of in school that you is that when you started to think of yourself as an artist more broadly
2: yeah, definitely. Because like I've always been interested in being a teacher and like music was always the thing that I was interested in teaching. It's, it's just kind of a combination, I guess, I don't know, maybe a better way to explain it is like, I'm very stubborn and like my kind of like knee jerk reaction to a lot of situations is like, forget all this. I'll just do it my own way. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's, that's really what radiates out of like a lot of what I do And, you know, maybe on one level, you can think of that as, like, impatience, but on another level, it's just like, okay, well, like, there's this, like, kind of DIY orientation that I really, really, like, at my core identify with, and that's really what I keep gravitating towards. And I think, like, when you have that kind of an orientation towards doing things, like, I'd rather do it my own way, I'd rather uh, um, kind of define an alternative uh, of some sort, you know, then what you end up doing is just adding this collection of tasks that are maybe otherwise supported by existing organizations or existing structures. And to me, like the kind of benefit to that, and this is uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at when I say the kind of permission that you kind of uh, get granted as like a studio artist as opposed to like a composer, right? Right is is that actually all of those things uh, are kind of, you know, fit under the same larger umbrella, right? So, I don't know. I, I mean, to me, there was kind of this suggestion that, like, musicians could operate that way when I was living in Wisconsin, and then it kind of seemingly was kind of confirmed by a lot of the way people behaved out in Los Angeles, uh, many of whom were involved with uh
0: so how long have you actually been in L.A. and been involved in the music scene there?
2: Uh, I, I moved out to this part of the country in uh, the summer of 2007. Uh, well, I was living up by CalArts for the first two years. So um, I moved down into the L.A. area more specifically rather than just like up by CalArts, which is um, uh, like, what, 40 minutes, half hour yeah. or so north. Um uh, in 2009. And then I've, I've basically been, um, you know, mostly in Echo Park, but briefly in Highland Park prior to this uh, since then.
0: And was CalArts sort of your entree into the broader LA music scene?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, I think especially when I was at CalArts, there was this um, emphasis on we understand that a lot of people are going to move. But we also think, like, if all of y'all can kind of stick around, you know, we can kind of grow a larger community here and Mm -hmm. it can kind of result in a lot of activity. And, I mean, to me, I feel like I see kind of uh, the outcomes of that. Totally. So for whatever weird reason, that just seems part of how people do things in, like, Southern California or how, at least, that's always been my impression. Like, it's just like, well, if you're interested in experimental music and like non-standard sound practices or doing more than simply like the most conventional way of being like a composer. Um, you know, you're going to invariably start your own band. You might start your own note, you know, you might have some part of your practice that involves your own version of notation, whatever that might mean. You know, it often, uh, seems like inevitable that you'd start your own publishing company as well as record label because why not just be in control of all components of that right, right. and like at least to me my oppression impression from afar and then it was kind of con- confirmed when i moved out here was that that's just what people did here yeah. like that's just how people were musicians which uh, makes sense
0: so then if from especially the creator side. it's sort of necessary to have that network of fellow performers and creators that sort of like have a baseline of understanding Mm -hmm. of how to like read your scores or to interpret the music and kind of engage with it in a meaningful way
2: yeah totally and I mean kind of the cool thing about like especially when I was at CalArts and I mean there was st- you know of course there's been like multiple waves of all of this but like when I was at CalArts like a lot of the primary reference points were things like you know Jim Tenney and Wadada Leo Smith and you know and Cage Michael Pissarro and like a bunch of uh you know these other like things that you know were never part of the conversation when I was in the Midwest. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know, it's, it's, in a way, it's just kind of seems natural to, like, just do it yourself as broadly as possible.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, maybe to te- take a step back um, to talk a little bit about your compositions and your music. Um, so, a lot of your compositions involve, tend to involve radio and text and some sort of um, computation in one form or another. And I'm just kind of curious if you see all these things as being interconnected um, Mm. or if you see them as sort of separate elements that you just kind of mush together.
2: Yeah, no. This is something I think about a lot. So I have kind of two different ways of answering that question. The first is like, so I have a really, really um, traditional kind of Western classical music training. Um, You know, I took piano lessons as a child and then... Um, you know, the instrument I always studied was saxophone, um, and, and I studied like French classical saxophone. Um, so like I was always interested in jazz, but like, that's what I like. The thing I had to be serious about for a lot of circumstantial reasons was, uh, French classical saxophone, but, um, sorry, I totally lost my train of thought.
0: (laughs) That's okay. I was just curious about how you see the kind of different parts of your practice.
2: Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, Like, okay, so there's this long period of time where, like, especially... Okay, so for me as a composer, like, especially when I was in Wisconsin, like... There was all of the like really traditional stuff I did uh, during school and then there was the stuff kind of on the side that I was doing with people who generally weren't affiliated uh, with either the university specifically or the music department. Um, And after a long period of time, like it seemed like it was important to start trying to come up with ways to structure these like long form improvisations that we were doing that basically always sounded the same. And so I kind of like backed into this point of, like, I guess I need to learn how to structure these things. I guess that's composition. You know, I guess I should actually study composition. And I, like, uh, studied with this guy who <laughs> regularly told me that not a note worth of worthwhile music has been written since, like, 1975, I think it was his Oof. cutoff year. your yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so, it could
0: have been earlier, but still.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, and it was weird because he'd like... His like rebellious students and like somehow I fit into this because I was like interested in fashionable noise, which is how he referred oh, to it. Okay. <laughs> but his rebellious students were like, oh, well, you remind me of Frank Zappa. And you'd be like, oh, that's cool. I like Frank Zappa. And then you'd be like, oh, wait, he means that as an uh, insult. Um. Anyways, uh, like to me... You know, the things that eventually became a little bit um, limiting about, like, conventional notation are, like, uh, a good way to describe kind of how I think of all these different things I do having similarities. Like, you know, I still find the idea of sitting in, like, in the audience for, like, the performance of a piece that's fully notated to be incredibly boring like I know exactly what that's gonna be like yeah like so like you know maybe window a difference is like pretty small right but w- like you know with these uh, text-based practices where you're kind of describing things that people can do and the way they relate to each other you know then all of a sudden like there's all these different interesting possibilities um, you know uh, here's the specific collection of, of these people and they all do things differently right you know language is like incredibly important you know you're just describing an action um, and so the way people interpret that is is also like a component of a particular performance so you know it, it's exciting to go to every performance especially as the right. composer because it's like I can't I can, I can maybe imagine how these different people are going to kind of make all of this happen. But, like, the real pleasure is going to be seeing all of those differences manifest themselves, right? Um, And to me, actually, like, the radio is a good example of that. You know, you can think about things, like, on a kind of different level of resolution. And so we say, like, okay, um... I know that there are these kinds of changes and there are these kinds of possibilities. And this is the category of sounds that I'm like laying out. And the radio really embodies that nicely. Like, especially the radios that I have, um, have like a mechanical tuning wheel. So like, I know exactly how to make a change, but I don't know exactly what that change is going to result in. But I do know that there's a fixed amount of categories of sound that the radio does. Um, and I like all of those. And the performance practice of using a radio is always going to, you know, depend on whether we get, like, music, talking, noises, or nothing. Um, and so, like, to me, like, that's the kind of structure that I think is interesting as, like, a sound structure. Yeah. Um, and then if you... Like, so that's the, maybe how the instrument operates, but then if you kind of make these other relationships between how an individual person kind of deals with that level of instability, you know, then it kind of balloons out. And so to me, there's like lots of different ways to take that kind of, uh, um, I don't know, parametric maybe like approach to um sound making with these that's exactly
0: how i thought about it like oh that gives you like a nice kind of limited set of parameters that you can kind of deal with
2: totally that's exactly how i think about it and i mean you know to me it's like i mean in a certain way you could think about it as as like a kind of constraint based kind of composition practice but like i think i think notation has like a finer level of kind of constraints than something like this does so to me it's really just a question of like difference in resolution you know, sure. how precise are the instructions that people give, like, or excuse me, that people are given, right? Like, to right. me, like, they you know, n- conventional notation is, is, you know, included in that, right? But like, I think it's a little bit more interesting to invite other people into some sort of a more collaborative relationship with whatever they're trying to do. Um Totally you know, like, what would so and so do? And how is that different than how I would do it? Like, that's super interesting to me.
0: And maybe like, along those lines, I guess, from performing a few of your pieces, and especially like you said, with the radios that you have that are super simple, it's kind of like anyone could perform one of your pieces. Is that element important to you?
2: Yeah, totally. And I don't know exactly when that started being like something that I was thinking about a lot. Like There was a period of time where I was writing pieces that I thought could be like, you know, the structures could be generalized. So even though they were, say, for cello, like, you know, with uh, some adjustment, you could imagine setting up a situation in which people who maybe weren't conventional musicians or trained musicians could do it also. And at least to me, it's like, okay, well, you know, how much more can you open up that space to allow other people, you know, thinking about like kind of expanding the possibility of like, Oh, well, if I'm writing pieces that people just need to operate a radio in a particular way, I, as a musician, am interested in thinking about that one way. Um, but in the larger ensemble, it's a cool possibility to also have somebody who's not a musician who can just think about it more as kind of a set of logical instructions. Right. Right. Um, and it's nice to involve both, I think, um, yeah. because I don't want to pretend that just because I've spent my entire life deeply studying classical saxophone that I'm the only person who knows how to perform with a radio. And, uh, you know, but then at the same time, it's like there's something about like my classical music training, particularly uh, around like my instrument and composition, that is really deeply informing this kind of serious practice. Uh, with maybe, you know, I don't know, non non standard things.
0: Yeah, totally. And I guess um, to keep talking about your music and maybe a specific composition, I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about your most recent piece, Ghost Seat. Go- I can't say it. I oh, yeah. It's uh, yeah, intimidated it's by how it's spelled.
2: Yeah, it's uh, Go- Ghosts.
0: Ghosts. Ghosts.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in 2009, I did this residency that I've been thinking about a lot, actually lately, um, at Atlantic Center for the Arts, and as uh, you know, there were like people there to study with Alvin Lucier, and we were all composers, and then there were people there to study with Brenda Hillman, and they were all poets, and then there were people all there to study with Will Cotton, and they were all painters. I don't know exactly why, but for whatever weird reason, like the not weird. I mean, it was great actually. But like the composers and the poets spent a ton of time together, um, and so for me, there was this cool uh, opportunity to not just learn about like poetry generally. I mean, like you know, I I I grew up with poetry. Like you know, um, lots of people in my family read a lot, um, but to really spend time with these people who were thinking about working with text in ways that seemed very, very compatible with the way we were all thinking about actions with sounds. And so for a while after then, I was trying lots of different ways of including reading and text in work that I was doing. And often the way it was included was just, here's a musical thing that happens that I've come up with, um, and then also there's reading or at least this was my kind of reductive uh, interpretation of a lot of these pieces. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, like it was important to me that such and such text was selected to go with such and such process, but the like specific identity of the text itself didn't necessarily feel like it interacted with like a lot of the sound processes outside of the fact that I had grouped them together. And, and that's all fine. Like, don't get me wrong, but like, that's just one way of like actually working with the text so like mm-hmm. to me it was like okay well like not just the sound of speech and not just reading a text but I'd like to uh, I'd like to kind of come up with something that is really really uh, defined and embodied by like components of the text itself so in Goses, which is like inspired by like a lot of other people who I think have like spent a ton of time looking at how text could be a kind of notation. You know, um, Jackson Maclow, Mark So, um, are, are the the two people who like are kind of like at the top of my list along those lines. With ghosts, the idea is like, okay, so the amount of time it takes to read across the page is durational. And so you could take pairs of parts of speech, for example, and As you're reading through it, you know, when you hit the first noun, that could be the start of a certain kind of activity that could continue until however long it takes you to get to the second noun. And so to me, you know, then you have, um, a kind of a durational notation that's driven by, um, at least, uh, in this particular example, a fairly simple analysis of like the text itself. In Ghosts, I kind of made this, like, system where you take some, like, input text. And for me, I was thinking about this as, as being well-suited to WGZ Vault's The Rings of Saturn, which has this kind of weird, dreamlike kind of quality to it. I feel like when you read it, you it's incredibly difficult to follow. Like, you you come in and out of what's actually happening. But to me, that's like the, that's what it's trying to do. Right. And so I was kind of looking for a way to represent this as a duo piece um, specifically for Bill Solomon and David Friend. You know, they're a piano percussion duo. And I kind of just generalized that and thought, like, okay, well, you know, that, like, we could just think of this as like a duo for two readers who play a battery of percussion instruments that include things that are, you know, piano-esque. And and so kind of all these different things got kind of put together into this this system where it's most of the first chapter of The Rings of Saturn. I've edited out some stuff. And they have this way to, based on how much of the transparencies of the text they're actually using that controls like the orchestration of their percussion battery. Um, And then they can kind of set this, this like uh, reading-driven... Um, you know, text and music performance in motion from there. And then so there's a Python program uh, that makes the score.
0: So it's, yeah, it just combines all those things of text and computation and radio and...
2: Yeah, totally. Going back to, like, the question you were you were asking earlier, like, you know, this piece is a good example. When I studied with Mark Trail, like, we talked a lot about, like, because, like, Mark Trail, or, like, actually most of the people that I feel like I spent a lot of time with, especially during grad school, did, like, lots of different things. And, like, Trail's whole thing was, like, well, over time, all of those things will invariably just blend together somehow, right? Right. And, and I mean, to a degree, I've found that at least in some projects and ghosts is kind of a good example like that that does in fact happen i mean i didn't set out to be like oh this is gonna take like all of the things that i've kind of been thinking about in like the last couple of years and like put them together
0: yeah and does computation um in this case or in other cases play a similar role as giving a sort of instructional score to performers that it's sort of
2: yeah i mean you know it's all just like I mean, I feel like it's, like, you just decide, like, how, like, what's the range of possible outcomes for, like, some indeterminate structure and, like, you know, um, I don't know. I think people are always going to be, like, you know, most indeterminate, like, in a good way. Um, And so that's, like, kind of one kind, right? But then, like, there are some of these other kinds that can be a little bit more brute force, right? And especially if you're someone like me, like, you know, the the programs that I'm writing are not necessarily, like, sophisticated, and that's really not the point. It's just more that it's um, another structured indeterminate element that can be uh, wielded, uh, like, you know, with with people.
0: Yeah. Is it also just the convenience of automation that it will go through? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, you?
2: totally. No, no, no. The primary thing with the whole GOSA's idea was, like, okay, well, um, I don't want to do this manually. Like, I have... Uh, it's like 14 pages the way I typeset it from the source. And then there's like seven different transparencies of each of those per each page. There's like eight pages of things and seven of them are transparencies and one is just like a normal piece of paper. And like, I could like just make that, um, but it would be so hard and so error prone, um, and one of the benefits of the way I've done it this way, and this is one thing that's always appealed to me about using, um, you know, uh, computation this way is, um, there was always this possibility when I was talking to Bentu about this, where it was like, well, I specifically thought about it in response to this particular part of the Zeebald. However, I have written the software in a way where if y'all had a different text, we could make uh, like an alternate version of uh, ghosts that's, you know, maybe whatever Bill and David think is like a text that's well-suited to that kind of a transformation.
0: Interesting. So it's not dependent on the Seaball text. No, although
2: I do, like not necessarily forever. Like for me, like it always comes from that, but like, um, Mm -hmm. and I don't think, I don't know if they have specific plans for something along these lines, but it's something we've always talked about where... Especially now, because they've they've performed it quite a lot. Actually, it's amazing. The last time we specifically spoke about it, there was this question of like, well, exactly how hard would it be to make a different version of this piece that's just a different input text? And it's like, ah, finally, all that extra work I did is paying off right in this conversation, right? Like, you know, because to me, it's cool to be able to do that, but I was satisfied with just the Zebald. And like, I was imagining, oh, at some point, it'd be cool to run the entire book through it. But it's a lot more exciting to hear Bill and David, especially after like two or however many years it's been, three, whatever, of like spending a ton of time of it, being like, "Oh, we actually have some other ideas for input text that we think are well suited," and it's like, "Oh my god, that's super exciting!" Like, and then imagining how, like, how would that relate to like this the Zebald version, and all of that becomes part of the larger project, right? Um, not just the way I've structured it, but also whatever they choose to include in that larger dialogue. I've got to say, I really don't think stuff like this happens as frequently with more conventional notations. So this is this is like exactly what I'm talking about. Is like exactly what I think is really exciting about doing things this way.
0: Right. That it invites interesting and new forms of collaboration.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And I mean, this piece is such a good example for me because, like, I think. I wouldn't have written it without them. They're, they're just perfect people to, to be involved in this. I mean, to me, this was like a huge shift in my output. A lot of things that I was trying to do, I feel like I finally figured out how to do in this particular piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have other pieces that kind of follow a lot of that that I'm still like actively working on. It was kind of like a best case scenario
1: was about more than a thorough. Of the inner, the human is suggested. Ceremonial. Our finest is wearing as well. There was a formal. If we stand, before the large are standing precisely who were present stood and we believe that we see what they saw then Yet is debatable, ever really saw, then was least, making invisible. It is somehow odd, are not looking, is directed just past, focus Open anatomical, appalling physical, are reduced a schematic human being such as envisaged enthusiastic amateur who was also, it is said, present philosophical. Form one of the principle. Descartes, disregard, is, attend, I
2: don't know yeah. if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting kind of hearing you get so excited about... This kind of collaboration when, you know, a few minutes ago you were talking about how stubborn you are and how you just wanted to do things yourself. Um, And it's funny because I always think of you as someone who does work with a lot of people in different ways. Um, So I don't know. Maybe that's a good segue to talk about some of your the programming that you're involved with around L.A. and getting shows to happen. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know. You know what I like about our discipline is it's like kind of inherently social. I mean, I, I know we're completely in sync about that. Right. And and like that's something I, I like kind of look for in other people who are active in this world. Right. And so to me, like what I, what's really exciting is kind of there's so much about the rehearsal process that i really love i don't want to distill a particular performance only down to one and only one version because i Mm -hmm. you know like i think we're all going to do things differently and that's what's actually really exciting about all of this um and more specifically we can set up our own terms for you know what is music here you know how does notation work how does this organization work Um, you know, and you can just kind of radiate out from that. So I don't know. I mean, I guess to me, it seems kind of natural if you're like saying, well, when I say composition, I mean, X, Y, and Z, it's not too far of a stretch to say, well, sure. But when we do performances of my compositions, I also need a B and C, you know, and, and I understand that that's different and this is why, right. And then to then take another step away and say like, okay, well, like, what if we just had an organization that could just support things like that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. So, so in a way, like, it feels like a pretty natural extension of the same kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just you keep kind of going like, all right, fine. Well, I can't expect the orchestra to understand this. So fine. Let's set up our own orchestra. Right? And then it's like, okay, well, I don't know. It's hard to find a place for our orchestra to play. So, like, what if we had our own venue? You know? Um, or our own concert series? Or... Um, our own nonprofit, you know,
0: yeah. And so but you work sort of um, cooperatively then with several with other people and other organizations venues to kind of get shows off the ground. And how does that typically work? Maybe a combination of do you tend to reach out to people to perform or do people reach out to you? How does it how does it kind of work?
2: It's changed a lot. The, over the last two years, I feel like, There's my own programming and then there's like external programming. And, you know, when I say external programming, that might mean something that I'm helping out with that is uh, under the name of like a different organization or where uh, someone I maybe might not actually know is just kind of approaching and they've heard like, oh, they can re- they can contact someone like me to try to find a show in LA. To me, like there used to be a period of time where I was spending more time uh, reaching out to people and asking them to participate uh, in things, and I still do that. But I also increasingly find myself um, providing a kind of space or opportunity either for Artists who are new in town, uh, or collaborators who are trying to do something different or people who are passing through. Um, and to me, I think that's, that's always felt really natural. Like even when mm-hmm. I was back in Wisconsin doing my undergrad, like the shows I cared the most about were the shows that we put together at like, uh, the local coffee shop that would allow us to do weird free jazz shows or the metal bar that would allow us to empty the room at the end of the night. It always seemed like, oh, well, the way I'll do my work is I'll put together a show, I'll play one of the sets, and then I'll book like my friends mm-hmm. and or other groups that I just love. Right. Um, and that's that'll be my preferred way to present not just my work, but also like work I care about. And the longer I did that, the more it just seemed to be natural to be like, okay, well, I'm not doing anything on such and such night. So, you know, I always want to go to shows. And to be totally honest, like, I'm in a a situation that's quite convenient right now because it's not that hard for me to find somewhere to play or find somewhere for someone to play. And then it's just like, fantastic. I mean, I can just go... To one of these places I like going to, I can see live music. Sure, I have to set up some chairs and stuff like that, but that's easy. Sure. You yeah, You know, this is, this is exactly how I want to spend my night, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, to me, like, uh, I think there's always been this part of me that felt like all I want to do is go to shows. Like, I don't always need to perform, but if I could have my own venue and just control, you know, the range of stuff that performs there. And then just give people space, like you know, that's kind of what I do, I guess, in my music too. So it just feels kind of like a natural extension.
0: Yeah. How is everything that's going on with the coronavirus impacting this?
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's good. Uh, That's a good question, and and I mean, I'm kind of it's it's something um, that I'm interested in talking about with a lot of people in in kind of like our world here. Um, Well, first of all, for me as an individual i really going back to what i was saying like my preferred way to spend a night doesn't matter what night it is is to like either perform or host a show or just be in the audience like right. show, show anything right so i understand abstractly how generative that is to my own creative practice as well as like how valuable that is to my sanity like that's just what i like to do it's been such a long period of time since I I haven't not performed a formal show in this long in ten years. Uh, I don't think. I mean it's it's kind of crazy putting it in those terms. but like yeah. since moving to LA, I literally cannot think of a time where I've gone even three months, two and a half months without attending a show, performing a show, or helping somebody else, you know, do a show, right? And it took a month to even realize how that extra infusion of energy just not coming in was not, like, feeding things that I normally rely on. And it still really kind of wears on me. Like, I appreciate the supplemental steps that I think a lot of us are taking to, to, You know kind of do events and stuff like that but it's just it's not quite the same right like the
0: live streams don't really scratch that itch
2: no and i think actually really probably the best thing we can all do is kind of just allow them to be different and then consider in the future when we're able to return to you know kind of our primary mode of programming like You know, is that an additional stream or does it give an extra layer of experience, et cetera, et cetera? Like, stuff like that is kind of exciting to me, but, like, I'm really just counting the days that I can go back to, you know, having 20 people in a small basement space in Chinatown, you know, to kind of quietly and seriously listen to something or same with Coaxial. So, I don't know. And, like, I'm, I'm glad that, like the organizations I'm involved in can continue doing things in the meantime, I just feel like we're just treading water. Um, and you know, like, I guess I had already made, made peace with the idea that there would be no shows, uh, for the entire summer. I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around that continuing for the rest of the year. And then, and I don't even know what to make of this, but, i can think of some places where they're at least spitballing like oh well we wouldn't start doing public events until like march of 2021. yeah so the longer it takes the the harder i have with it yeah because also a lot of my a lot of my music is about like the live situation anyways so like if we can't even be in the same space i I just had somebody who was emailing me about pieces that could be done of mine that are like able to be done distributed or via mm-hmm. zoom that cuts my up that cuts my like possible range of things i can send to people down substantially it's totally yeah. crazy
0: yeah Ooh, i know it's such it's really hard to like you said i think wrapping our minds around it is really tough and especially because things seem to be changing so quickly it's really hard to kind of get your footing and know what things are going to look like yeah in a month t- or two
2: Exactly. Yeah, and so I'm hesitant to like make any big appeals or pitches until we have more information to work with. But then again, like I understand the flip side of that where it's just like, well, continuing to communicate through this is like an important thing for organizations to do. So it's, yeah. it's it it's difficult to know exactly what the right step is. You know, I think the the best thing that any of our organizations that we all, you know, work with or run or whatever can do is just try to think about like, okay, well, how can we continue to serve our community given that like our avenues are,
0: are, you know, one hundred percent different now. so yeah i I
2: don't know, but I mean, it it's just it's it it's amazing how like draining just not having this kind of part of my life that it just seemed like totally routine.
0: Well, yeah, for something that was such a big part of your life, for sure. Mm -hmm. And it is super demoralizing to think about. Because like you said, it's not—it's about the creative work, but it's also about the community that it facilitates and enables. It's really so intertwined that it's it's really tough to think about. Yeah,
2: totally. I mean, you know, and I mean, I still think about this all the time. If The Wolf hadn't existed at all, it's difficult to imagine Los Angeles experimental music for me without it yeah but if it hadn't existed at all i think i definitely would have probably left la
0: right
2: um years ago one thing that's important to me is trying to keep that kind of a thing going
0: yeah
2: he may be
1: melancholy can throw is to tell him he is scrutinizes that which escaped has observed he refers to what does it mean?
0: I do think it's kind of interesting, like you were saying at the outset, that there really is a lot of connection, um, at least especially in terms of like kind of the internal impulses to do things um, around all the different activities that you're doing. And I wanted to spend a little time talking about your record label, A Wave Press. Um, and I guess you already mentioned, you're like, yeah, I just want to do stuff myself, but I'm curious kind of how that got started and maybe what were some of the initial projects that like, were kind of like, oh, no one else is going to put this out. I'm the one that needs to do this.
2: Yeah, totally. No, it's the radio CD for like yeah. 100%. So Mocha donated 60 AM FM radios to me after like the, <laughs> there was this period of time where we like the wolf kept getting connected with Mocha events and Mocha has like a whole basement full of stuff. Like, they call it trash. It is not trash. It is leftover materials from, like... So, like, down there was, like, a box of 60 AM FM radios that they had purchased for, like, a Michael Passaro performance. I can't remember the name of the piece, but there was, like, just a handful of years earlier, and they were just in a box. So they'd be like, oh, we have all kinds of stuff down there, like a box full of radios, and I was like, I want that. Um, And so after the third the third time I did an event that used that they were like why don't you just have them um, and so I started writing all these pieces that were like I have lots of radios for like several years like anytime I did a show it was probably this piece possible dust where like everybody tries to find some like kind of home station that like a separate radio is secretly tuned to just by listening right And so after a long period of time of doing this, like somebody was, uh, uh, William Hudson actually was like, Hey, we should do a nice recording of these. And I was like, great, uh, please. Like, I would love that. And I don't know how to do that. And so fortunately we started working on this. Um, and while this was happening, I was like, okay, well, I definitely want to put this out. And I started reaching out to various, uh, experimental music oriented, like small, DIY labels and like I don't know about you but like I am used to doing everything myself so reaching out to strangers and I know this is like a negative way of putting it but to me I always felt like hey person I don't know do you want right. to spend a bu- do you want to spend a bunch of money on me like it was just, like to me like the whole conversation is ridiculous yeah. right and bless the people who are willing to like I mean of course nobody makes that as the pitch but bless the people who are willing to like basically take that on but like to me at a certain point it was just like okay well i was having a hard time getting in touch with people we were making progress on the recordings it seemed like at a certain point we were going to these two ends were going to meet each other and i was going to need to make a decision and around that time uh, a collaborative tape only record label project that I had been doing was kind of drawing to a close. And so it was like, okay, cool. Why don't I start my own thing? It won't have a format restriction. It'll be primarily to publish my own work. And then, uh, and this is kind of just, I don't know. I always go in this kind of a place where it's like, well, if I'm publishing my own work, I may as well also publish work. I like, or work by my friends, right. which is also work. I like, of course we were working on wrapping up the radio CD. Cause like the possible dust recordings came together like super, super fast. And then it took like three extra years to finish the snow Two recording. Um, and by that point it was like, okay, I'm definitely doing my own label. Uh, and Scott Kazan uh, happened to have something that he was looking to put out. And it was like, perfect. Like, you know, this is, this is, I mean, you know, it was one of those stars aligned situation. Yeah. It's like, these are my people. Like I had this amazing designer who I loved working with and was just a cool guy and like got it named Steven Zia D and it was just like, you know what? Like uh, why not just do my own label? Like there's no, there's no reason not to. Right.
0: That's awesome. And so you're putting out what about four releases a year?
2: Yeah. So, and that's actually, that's my like goal um, kind of moving forward. Like I think I can do four physical releases a year I try to let the decision for the physical releases be whatever suits the material the best. I haven't been in a situation where I've done 4 LPs in a year. Yeah. But I'm not saying like that would never happen. That would just depend on having 4 projects lined up in a year that all needed to needed be on that. LP. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um I really love doing it. I've always wanted to publish stuff um and like the kind of like crew of people that I've been able to like put together around the label, like both like mixing and mastering people as well as like design. Um, and the curatorial Avenue has been really important to me. So I feel yeah. really lucky um, to be able to spend time doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, before we run out of time um, another project that you do that I wanted to talk to you about um, are the workshops in Haiti. Oh yeah. Um, and I don't, it seems like maybe that hasn't been able to happen um recently because of lots of circumstances but i just think it's a cool project so could you maybe talk a little bit about it and kind of the direction that you'll you hope it'll go
2: yeah totally my uh job uh i run a fabrication lab in a uh graduate only uh media design program at art center college excuse me college of design in pasadena um and so when i started there in 2011 uh, a faculty member named Elizabeth Chen was starting there as well. Elizabeth is trained as an anthropologist, has a background as a dancer, um, and so we've been working at our center together for uh, quite some time now. Um, her long-term research uh, site as an anthropologist has been Haiti. In 2016, I met her out there, and uh, we were meeting at this community school in rural Haiti on the island of Lagunov. It's called L'Ecole Communauté Matanois. The first year we were there, it was kind of just trying to ask the question, what kind of a technology curriculum makes sense in rural Haiti? Um, Did she
0: approach you to come with her, to meet her there, or...? Yeah, yeah. so...
2: In 2015, uh, she went with a a research assistant and they did photo classes. And so the idea was like we could do hands on technology workshops uh, that are nominally about like media literacy, but are actually about technology literacy. Mm -hmm. Um, So doing a photo portraiture class was one example, right? The next year, we brought a lot of uh, DIY electronic stuff. Um, so we had them make, uh, contact microphones, hack RGB LED toys from, um, this, uh, service called Oriental Trading Company. Um, what else did we do? Built simple synthesizers, amplifiers, um, things like that. Like the atmosphere of the school lends itself to this kind of a technology education. Um, it's a constructivist oriented school uh you know if they can teach something in the context of making something that's really uh, the preference um, and so our hands on approach to technology education is kind of a natural fit here so there's a limitation to the amount of things that are passing through there there's not a lot of um, manufacturing in Haiti in general resources come from somewhere else and they're often second or third hand so um, So it's common to end up with a lot of stuff and uh, repurpose it into other things. Like that's just something that everybody there is used to doing, of course. Um, Just
0: part of the culture.
2: Yeah. Uh, And you see it in a lot of different aspects of people's lives. But it seemed natural to basically try to create um, a curriculum of activity that simply just brings that that kind of uh repurpose orientation uh into technology mm-hmm. um and i say that because uh like when i was there the first time there were a lot of stories about like oh i was on such and such part of the island i happened to run into the street vendor he sold me this cool thing it was like a solar powered light and i used to read it you know use it to read at night or whatever and then it just broke Um, and you'd be like, oh, okay, cool. Do you have any idea why it broke? No. And it would be like, okay, I understand. Did you try to get it fixed? And be like, no, I just threw it away. The workshops really have this nice opportunity to just reposition these things and that's it. Right. Um, and then the other really important component of this is we don't go over there going like, we're going to help you fix everything. Uh, we don't use any of that, uh, terminology. It's really, really collaborative. So our, our collaborators who are at the school right now. Their dream, and this is something that we're interested in supporting, is to have a community-facing repair shop. Mm-hmm. And maybe once a week, it does, um, you know, some simple uh, DIY technology workshop. Come here, you'll get a solar-powered um, amplifier that we build into a small marmite tin, for example. This mm-hmm. and th- and this is basically an example of something that arose out of the workshops we've been doing there, mm-hmm. right? Um, so. Uh, that's kind of where it is right now is Mm -hmm. um, uh, dealing with the constraints of kind of getting materials like they're out of materials over there right now Um, and we can't send anything in so one question is like in an extreme situation like right now what what's the level of technology education that like could continue happening Um, and then also the more important question is how long does it take a community-facing electronics lab like th- something like this to be self-sufficient? In other words, our our primary motivating question is how long does it take Elizabeth and I to become irrelevant to the right. day-to-day activities of the lab? Okay. And we think that's the real measure of success. And so with the Haiti Project, um, you know, we have a lot of media and work that, that we're processing right now um uh and we owe the school some archival lesson plans um that'll be both in english and in creole Mm -hmm. um and so that's where our efforts are going to go um and then i have a i have a digital only thing that a wave press will put out in july that's related to the larger haiti
0: project sweet do you want to is it too soon to give it a little plug no,
2: I can talk about it. Uh <laughs> So, I have a recording of uh a uh voodoo ceremony um uh that a friend of ours did. Uh we'll do a digital-only uh release of that for the July Bandcamp day, um and that will fund our friend's son's college fund. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Later, medical.
0: We know that is
1: twenty eight. He attended then outstanding just before returning received. Was thus he was in profoundly. Human ever was undertaken a petal beam alias so earlier who no had been it. hanged is probable. We have was present, it is extraordinary. Depicted the anatomy given not only the greatest were a significant, constituted, saw itself as emerging. Public, the upper presented before a pain, the undaunted, investigative, the view represented also would have been refuted. This surely of dismembering, the archaic of harrowing, even. then still